The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Clean Coders podcast. This week, we're talking to Eric Critchlow. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Do you want to just give us an introduction? Let us know who you are, why you're famous, all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah, not even Twitter famous or, or in any way, shape or form. Well, I'm a 48-year-old software developer in the Phoenix area with, what year are we in now? Um, 2020. This came out of 19, so about 24 years of professional programming experience, uh, the last... 11 I've been doing pretty much strictly mobile, at least professionally. iOS for the last 11 years, Android for the last seven. And recently I started working on, well, released actually, uh, the first three episodes of a native iOS development video series for the good folks at Clean Coders and was honored to be able to write the afterword in Uncle Bob's latest book that came out around October, Clean Agile. Nice. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. The first episode of this podcast was about Clean Agile, so... There we go. I was actually asked to, to review an early draft of it. Then from there, got asked to actually write the afterword, which was a lot of fun since I've never actually written anything that's been seen by more than a handful of people. To see your name on a, the cover of a book is kind of a cool thing. Yeah, I'll bet. So uh, I'm, I'm a little curious, 24 years, how did you get into programming in the first place? Good question. And, and it's honestly a story I like to tell. And just as a slight aside, you know, I gave my first conference talk back on November 1st of last year. And it was, you know, the company asked me to do it. It was for SHPE, the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers had their mm -hmm. national convention in Phoenix. And the company does some recruiting there. There's a lot of college folks that, that attend that. And they asked me to go speak and about what we're doing and, and what's cool about what we're doing, try to convince people to come work with us. And after the talk was over, I was kind of surprised that, that the people who came up to me afterwards, most of their commentary was, hey, loved hearing about your history and how you got into the business. And I'm like, really? Of, of everything I said, that's what kind of stood mm -hmm. out to you. So that was somewhat surprising, but um, also made me feel pretty good. Where I got started... My first exposure to personal computers would have been in second grade. And our second grade teacher, Mr. Fine, had a TRS-80 color computer. I'm guessing it would have been a color computer two at that point. And it was a, a really cool thing. And I'd never dealt with a personal computer before. <laughs> and I was really interested in it. So when the time came to get my own computer, which would have been, I think, a few years later, uh, by that time I had probably had some experience with a Commodore pet maybe was the other thing. And it was really cool too. But when, when I asked my parents like, Hey, I want a computer. I wanted that same computer that my second grade teacher first exposed. Me to. <laughs> right. We went to radio shack and we got a TRS-80 color computer too. And I, you know, I set about learning it and playing with it and using it. And back in those days, yeah, it was the, the 8-bit days, you had the Commodore 64, mm -hmm. at some point in time, the 64, and Atari had their machines, and maybe it had some, uh, what the original was like, the IBM PC Junior or something like that. The, the color computer was like the red-headed stepchild of 8-bit computers back in the day. And it was a very small community. I ended up shelving mine for probably a couple of years because there was just not much I could do with it. There were a couple of magazines uh, Rainbow Magazine being the biggest one and Color Computer Magazine that kind of tied the community together from around the country, around the world. But locally, there wasn't much going on. And eventually, after, after sitting dormant catching dust for a couple of years, I decided to, to try to reconnect with it and try to find some other people who did something with this computer that I owned. 
Right. Because no one I personally knew, the people I personally knew were all in the Commodores. Mm-hmm. Um, and back in those days, the thing to do prior to the internet and prior to CompuServe and Delphi and America Online was local dial-up bulletin board systems, BBSs. Right. You know, single line, you could dial in and it's busy, you wait and you keep trying until you can get in. And there was a guy who ran a local BBS in Las Vegas, which is where I grew up, who put me, who gave me the phone numbers of a couple of guys he knew in town that had color computers. And I called the first guy and he wasn't home. I called the second guy, he answered. That would have been 1984, would have been 12 years old at the time. That second guy who answered his phone has been my best friend ever since. Let's say it's uh, 35 years now. Wow. Um, he was much more involved in it than I was. And so he and I hooked up. And mind you, he lived in, in Henderson, which is uh, on the outskirts of Las Vegas. And back in those days, it was, you know, uh, an infinite distance apart, yes. especially two kids who aren't old enough to drive yet. But my mother was always nice enough to drive me all the way out there occasionally to go hang out with him and and he had a lot more software than I did and we spent time hanging out and doing stuff and he showed me all kinds of things. Well eventually it went from being the TRS eighty color computer to the Tandy color computer mm-hmm. and and they came out with a Tandy color computer three, which we were all tremendously excited about. And when that came out, one of the big things with Tandy was this alternative operating system that you know, they had you boot it up and it boots into RS DOS, Radio Shack DOS, which Microsoft wrote. But they had this alternative, honest-to-goodness, legitimate, real-time operating system called OS 9. Uh And and that was like the the big thing. But as much as the color computer community was small and getting smaller as time went by, the OS 9 community was even smaller than that. Oh, yeah. So a lot of us who got involved in that became programmers out of necessity. In fact, most of the people I know from back in those days ended up with jobs in programming, because we all program from, you know, out of necessity to just share stuff with each other, not to even really make money from it. Whereas all the guys I knew from back in those days who had Commodores and IBMs or whatever, none of them became programmers because they had all this software just handed to them. So they, they never needed to learn how to program. Right. Um, so anyway, so we start, you know, we all start learning to program on this operating system, OS 9, on this TRSA called Computer 3. And eventually, when, when Tandy dropped the, the color computer line, the community developed new 16-bit systems, hobbyist systems, of which I bought one, and I think there were only 200 sold ever. Oh, wow. But the community continued having conventions. In fact, they still, to this day, have one in Chicago every year, the annual Last Cocoa Fest. And I attended one in Atlanta, and I had written a game for this mm-hmm. only 200 ever sold computer. And took the game there and, and, and met up with some guys face to face. And from the work there, coincidentally, when I graduated college in 95 here at Arizona State, I was working for Chase Bank in their credit card authorization division. And I graduated with a degree in psychology because when I went to college, I said, I love programming. I don't want to ruin it as a hobby. So I'm not, there's no <laughs> way I'm going to have this be what I major in. Right. And I majored in electrical engineering, failed, switched to psychology, loved it, succeeded. But when I graduated, what am I going to do with a psychology degree? And I'm saying, am I going to stick with Chase and just work in you know, credit cards forever? Coincidentally, one of the guys that I met from the hobbyist conventions and the, this, you know, this community reached out and said, hey, we need some people here in Des Moines. Des Moines would be where the company, Microware, that made that operating system, OS 9, was headquartered. We need some people out here for programming, and I know you. I've seen your stuff. I know you can do it. What do you think? Well, I can go back and get that master's degree that I don't really want to go get. I can stay here, keep working for Chase, or I can go move to Des Moines, which I didn't even know where it was at the time, (laughs) and try to build a career. And that's what I did. And went to Des Moines, spent the first couple of years there, the two winters there. Why people choose to to live in in that is still... (laughs) After two years, I had some reasons I needed to come back to Phoenix. I got very, very lucky. And then when I came back in the, the newspapers, back when we had to look for jobs in the newspaper, I saw in the classifieds for programmers a job for an OS9 programmer. You don't wow. ever see a job for an OS9, especially in the paper. And so that got me going with that for several months. When that ended, I, was, I luckily knew a, a, someone who worked for a contract agency who had some ends with some local companies. And that got me into 
another company. And by then it was about three years in and it just, I never, I used to worry because I don't have that degree. You know, I don't have that formal training. Right. But after about three years and, and a couple of lucky breaks, I, I never needed it again. And I've just been able to keep rolling in, you know, in this business. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. My sister just graduated with a psychology degree and she's trying to figure out what to do with it. So I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Some things don't change. And not at all. Yeah. That's really fascinating though. And I, I love just the approach of, you know what? I know people. I just wrote a book about how to find a job and that's generally how I tell people to go about it, right? Is find a community to go meet people, go find the people that work at the company you want to be at because that's by far the most effective way to get in. And it also, to me, demonstrates that, you know, yeah, you had some aptitude as a, as a kid or a younger person as a teenager, but yeah, I mean, you don't have to have the CS degree. You don't have to have the formal training, right? You just have to be able to get the work done and yeah, you know. Yeah, nowadays, a lot, I, I, I get approached occasionally like on LinkedIn or whatever. Um, and even when I, when I mm-hmm. made that presentation last year, from people, you know, what do I do? How, how do I get out there? I want to get involved in this. And I'm like, well, be seen. And, and yep. yes, going to, because there's all kind of local meetups for this stuff. And you know, that's one way to go about it. But contribute to open source projects. Write your own stuff and get it on the app. Yeah. Because especially if you want to do mobile, companies want to know that you've actually done stuff. I've personally gone to releasing most of my stuff as open source because mm-hmm. I'm not making any, even you know, my indie projects don't make any money. So why keep them to my, put them out there. Hey, right. my stuff, you know, get yourself out there and, and, and let people see you. And over the years, I've done a, a bunch of interviewing of potential candidates. And honestly, and a lot of it, of course, has to do with my own background, but I don't care one bit okay, only very slightly about what your educational background is. Right. I ask a lot of questions about how did you get into the field? When you go home from your nine to five, do you program on independent projects? Yeah, I want to know, or I have the most faith in people who do it because they love it than people who were told, hey, you're good at math. You've got an aptitude towards this and that's a high <laughs> So go get that degree. Yeah, I might've heard that a time or two growing up. And I wound up getting a, a computer engineering degree, so which is more closely related to electrical engineering than it is to computer science. But, right. But yeah, I completely agree. I'd rather hire somebody that's going to put in the time, do the work, you know, that they love doing it because it, it comes through in so many ways. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, nobody has to worry about, okay, Apple just released Swift. Is this guy going to learn it? Do we have to have yeah. it on the clock? No, I'm going to go out and grab a book and learn it because I'm going to work on my own projects with it because it's what I enjoy doing. Yep. What's the last book you read? A technical book. What's the, what's the book you're reading right now? Kotlin programming for Android because that's the you know, latest yep. thing over there and because I want to know it. And, and when we bring in somebody, I don't want to have to worry about it. Is this person going to keep up on, on, on the field or are they doing it themselves because this is what they love to do? Yep, absolutely. So how long were you doing OS9 and related programming before you got into something like mobile? Or was there a step in between that? It was a couple of years of OS9 at, at Microware. And then there was that one job I mentioned, contract work, which was for a company called ESI, Engineered Systems Inc., I think, which... They did fuel terminals, so the mm-hmm. big semis that deliver gas to the gas stations. They themselves gas up those, you know, those. Oh, interesting. At these terminals, and and so that's what this company did. And their system was written and was running on OS nine. So that's why they needed someone to come and do some work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, after them, it was okay, go work on the C++ project, which was only a tiny bit of C++. Thankfully, since I didn't really know it all that well. Then I spent a couple of years working for a company called NCS, which was bought by Pearson Publishing and became NCS Pearson on, on educational software. And then a, a little stint at another company that did, that did e-learning. Then back to NCS for a little while. And from in, in NCS, being in education was strongly cross-platform Mac and Windows. Um, I didn't get to do much native programming, but I got to work in the Mac native environment. So when things finally ended there, an opportunity came up with a company called Jatico Calcom that used to make digitizers and tablets and things. And they had an interactive whiteboard, kind of like, 
like Band-Aid is the, is the generic name people use for a bandage because mm-hmm. they're the brand. Well, smart boards are what a lot of people have, have heard of or seen with their kids in the schools. And we made a competing product to that where you had a, this, this whiteboard that would be mostly in schools in a classroom with a digital grid behind it. Mm-hmm. And you hook it up to a Mac or Windows. I did the Mac stuff. Hook it up to the Mac have a projector, project the, the yep. computer's image onto the whiteboard, and using this electronic pen, we could tell where you were on the whiteboard, and, and then we you know, sync that up with, get the image up with where it is on the computer screen, and so this pen becomes a mouse, and basically you're up at the whiteboard controlling the computer as if you were at the computer with the mouse, which got me to working on a lot of uh, Bluetooth integrations that we did the USB right. connection and Bluetooth connections and tablets. We ended up coming out with some Bluetooth tablets, which you know, prior to there being an iPad with an actual screen built into the tablet, it was just a, a tablet. You had to sync between your, what you were holding and the pen in your hand and looking at the screen and, and kind of making that all work together. Right. Um, so that's a good six years of working on that. And having that native Mac OS development experience. So when 2008 came around and there was no iOS yet, it was iPhone OS. And mm-hmm. Some recruiter reached out to me for American Express and said, hey, they, they need some people to work on the iPhone over there. And there's not a lot of those out there right now, but you know Mac OS development and pretty close, right? Yes, it is. All right, why don't you talk to them? Talk to the, the hiring manager there and, and he's like, yep, sounds good. Come on in. And so I spent almost two and a half years at American Express in the really early days before they even had a mobile app. And we were, the guy I worked under was something of a visionary. He had just all these grand ideas of what could be done and had us there working on proof of concepts and, and uh, hey, I, I, w- I want to show management what a digital wallet might look like. So go work on this for a few weeks or a couple of months for me and, and give me something I can show. And so, you know, two years in, in American Express, never worked on anything that actually saw the light of day. Spent a bunch of time learning because, again, I had just I didn't I hadn't written a line of iOS code or iPhone OS code when I took the job. So a lot of it was our little team of three and, and later four Android came out was just learning the platforms and learning how to develop on them and not really producing anything, which has been the probably biggest downside of being a mobile developer for the last 11 years, when I look back on it, prior to where I'm at now, uh, the last four years, I've been working on something that we saw the light of day, it's out there in the world. But prior to that, um, so the seven years prior to that, more than half of, of my career in mobile was spent building proof of concepts, companies thinking they might want to dabble in this, so give me an eye, show me what this might look like. Okay, thanks. And most of it, Never saw a light of day, never saw a customer's hand, never <laughs> saw the app store. That was actually discouraging for a while. You know, when you, you're a programmer, you, you yeah. want people to get a hold of your stuff. You want to see stuff. Some of my fondest memories are when I worked for the interactive whiteboard company, going to Macworld and demoing, standing there for four days, five days, how long it was, and just standing in our booth and, and demonstrating to people and showing them what I, you know, I worked on that they could have and having teachers and administrators come up and, hey, this would be great for us. You know, or, hey, we have these and this is, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. Or, this is something I'd like to see. Oh, okay, I might be able to go back and work on that. You know, you, you like to see, you like to, to talk to people who, who like your stuff. And, and when you work on stuff that never sees the light of day, that can kind of be discouraging. So I, I'm very much happier now that mobile has blown up the way it has so yeah. now a lot more of us are working on projects that really do end up hitting the stores. When I was first freelance, the first handful of contracts I had, I had one contract that it was maintaining an app that was already out. And it was essentially a blog. Yeah, there were a couple of others that I worked on. And yeah, they never got released. Nobody ever used it, saw it other than my client. And yeah, that was really, really discouraging. But as a full-time employee, yeah, there were a few apps that I worked on that, that did get released. And, and I definitely hear that. You talking about the smart boards too. My first IT job, I worked in the network operations center for, the, for BYU, for the university I went to. And yeah, they put a smart board into the new data center when we moved into that. And I remember, yeah, working on that. And 
yeah, you'd draw stuff up there and then you'd hit the button to save it. <laughs> yes. We had little little soft keys that you could find yeah. by the board and then what yeah. action those take. And eventually that company got bought out actually by a, a, another company. So we changed names from Tico Calcom to Interite Learning um, because it, you know, they, they had, mm-hmm. had, had grown from being this, this digitizer company to being more of a consumer company or an education company. And then, and then another company called e-instruction bought them out and brought us in and introduced some new products. So something else you might have seen, they called them, and I always hated this, this name for them clickers, which <laughs> every student, so just like you buy books at the school library, you'd go and buy your clicker. And then if you're in one of those big lecture halls, you know, I, I don't know about BYU, but at Arizona State, we had some three, 400 people lecture halls for you know, like physics. Oh, yeah. Yep. So the teacher has a presentation in PowerPoint that they do, and someone at and, and various points in the presentation, they can embed a question. And in PowerPoint, the Microsoft apps actually have programmability in them, visual basic for applications. Uh-huh. At least on the Mac side, it was VBA on Windows. You could do it just with, through VB. So I, you know, I wrote code for these plugins for, for PowerPoint to where they could embed a question, and then they ask the question, and okay, now give your answers. And all the students can register their answers. And then the next screen comes up and we show all the responses. So they get instant feedback on how many people understand what they're talking about and how many people got it wrong. Another just you know, interesting technology to work with. It, oh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that does sound like fun. I'm curious, you know, as we get into talking about mobile development. So you, you got into iOS development. Yeah, way back when it was iPhone OS and all of that stuff. So how has that changed over the last, what, 10 years? In some ways, quite a bit. In some ways, not so much. Um, of course, Apple, a few years back, released Swift. You know, they, yeah. they, they changed the language because Objective-C, if you were a C programmer like me, learning Objective-C took an afternoon. All you right. had to do was understand the somewhat odd syntax of putting mm-hmm. brackets around things. Um, and, and if you had ever understood or learned any object-oriented language, and at that point, I had read up on C++ and had, had understood and done a right. little Java. Understanding classes, no big deal. So learning Objective-C was just real easy. And for the longest time, I was in love with Objective-C. Like, this is, this is fantastic because learning C++, when I learned it, when I read a couple of books on it, I thought, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then I started seeing open source projects or, you know, downloading stuff from CompuServe projects people wrote in it. And I'm looking at code of people who really know the language and thinking, I hate this. And, and in fact, it's only been in the last year or two where I said, you know what? I've been saying for a decade that I hate C++. I don't hate C++. C++ is great. I hate the way people use C++. And so knowing Objective-C, that was great. And it didn't take too much to get into. And that lasted just for a good long time. And Swift came out and, and I wasn't real thrilled about it, but I ended up taking a side contract working on it, not knowing it in the slightest bit from someone mm-hmm. who, who I had done some side work for in the past. So I'd, and they were okay with me not knowing it and learning it as I went. So I mm-hmm. learned that and, and transitioned. And so now I, I don't even recognize it to see when I see it anymore. So, you know, that was one shift. And, and Apple does have a tendency to change things at their whim and break things. Um, <laughs> I released a game oh, last year, a little over a year ago, somewhere in there. And all of a sudden, iOS 13 came out, broke. And I didn't realize that because I didn't, st- didn't install iOS 13 initially. And so it took me a few weeks to realize that my game was broken. And still had, I'm working on fixing it now because it's kind of really broke. And Apple has changed a number of things in terms of how you do layout. The most recent thing being Swift UI, which yeah. I haven't even looked at. I don't know the first thing about SwiftUI yet, but uh, you know, I'll get there. But a lot of changes that weren't as drastic as that, but in terms of layout, they've made changes over the years that we've had to adjust mm-hmm. to. And it's, there's usually a reason. We're coming out with the iPad, so we're going to have more screen sizes now. Oh, the iPad's going to be able to run multiple applications, so your application might be running in this sliver on the side of the screen versus the full screen, so your your layout needs to dynamically adjust to it. And those are more so the kind of things that you know, I've had to adapt to over the years. And, and usually you can get by without adopting those new technologies. There's still things, there's some called size classes that, that they introduced years ago now that I still don't use. So 
the stuff that I write doesn't dynamically adapt to running on an iPad and running as a background app or you can get away with it depending on if it's an independent app, depending on because you're a professional app, depending on whether you're counting on having full screen, whether you run on the iPad or not. Um, and, and I've kind of been able to get away without always staying at the cutting edge of everything Apple does. And in some ways, it's even easier on Android. One thing I, I, I say I like to tell people, I just tell people honestly, is the Android code that I write today is the same code I could have written six years ago. Google, like Apple, introduces new things, and sometimes they do make breaking changes. But if you're okay with limiting yourself, you know, not adopting the new architectures, not adopting new design patterns, programming, programming paradigms, you can still write code that works perfectly fine on the latest hardware and the latest operating system but that doesn't use the new stuff and so could just as easily have been written years ago. And that's kind of why I'm out on the Android side because it is very hard to keep up. It's, it's hard to keep up on one platform. And I know right. most programmers I know don't want to learn both and don't know both. And, and that kind of shocks me. I'm like, why wouldn't you? I mean, I love iOS and, and it's mm-hmm. what I own personally, but Android's cool too. And it's fun seeing stuff come up on, on an Android phone as well. I, you know, I want to get my game over to Android. Why wouldn't you know both? But some people very honestly and truthfully make the point, it's hard enough trying to keep up on one platform and what the latest and greatest is, much less two, which is why I've, I've lagged behind on, on keeping up with Android stuff. And, and like now this year, I'm like, okay, I, I need to try to kind of catch up and, and not be bleeding edge, but at least be current on both. Yep, I hear you. I've been podcasting about iOS development on and off for, dang, like five years? We podcasted all through the transition for Swift and things like that. And yeah, everybody's all in on iOS and nobody nobody really knows Android. Some people have fiddled with it. We talked about Kotlin a little bit before Google really picked it up. But it's been really interesting to watch the changes that have come through and, and what's gone on there. And yeah, I haven't really followed Android as much. I used to hate Android development with an absolute passion and only did it because I had to over the years. The relationship has, has softened mm-hmm. and grown. I actually kind of love it now. And, and where I'm at now, I was brought in to lead the Android project and to kick off this brand new project. And that probably had a lot to do with it. You right. need to start something from scratch and you know something real and legitimate and big. I really do like both now. And much to my surprise, lately, I, I get uh, daily calls from recruiters um, and emails from recruiters and, and LinkedIn hits from recruiters. Mm-hmm. I'm actually seeing over the last year significantly more Android job postings than iOS postings. Oh, wow. Not just slightly more, significantly more. And that has been a real surprise to me. Yep. So one other thing that I've kind of picked up as we've talked through this is that you've learned a lot of different programming paradigms. You, you seem to enjoy picking up new things. So what's your process for that? You know, Let's say that somebody comes out with a new mobile operating system there's a new way of doing things. You decide, okay, I'm going to go pick this up. What's your approach? Buy a book. Buy a book? Buy a book. That has always been it for me. Dead tree pulp book? Yeah. Um, With Kotlin, I bought a digital copy, a Kindle version, Mm -hmm. and was reading that. And my iPads and iPad mini, and and I had done some reading of technical books on there, but I now have a toddler who's just shy of three mm-hmm. and she owns both my and her mom's iPad minis and is often running <laughs> Google, um, YouTube for kids on both of them at the same time. Right. I couldn't have it in my hand without her walking and taking it from me. So I was reading this Colin book on my phone and I'm like, no, this is right. just not going to work for me. So I then went back and, and bought the, dead tree version of it. And that's what I'm currently reading. You know, I used to always get these discounts from O'Reilly. You know, O'Reilly's always wearing a special and I'm oh, a special, I can do programming books. And I have bought certainly a dozen books from O'Reilly and three quarters of them have never been touched. But hey, <laughs> they were 50% off. So, but at the times where I honestly wanted to learn something new, most of the time, um, I, I when I learned Swift, I did not buy, I think I did, but I, did, I didn't read the, um, 
paper version of the Swift book. I, I did read through Apple's, you know, used to be iBooks, now books, the uh, Swift book. But for the most part, when I want to learn something, it is go out and buy a book. And what generally prompts me to want to learn things is my indie stuff. Yeah, you know, rarely have I learned something new for work. It's always been I. You know, I've had an uh, an indie app that's been my stable for. I think I started it in two thousand three, maybe even earlier than that. And that was first on the Mac, and then I wanted to do it for Windows. So uh, I dabble. I, I contemplated doing it in Java and having run on both, and decided no. I mean, I like Java. Java's cool. Java Swing is okay for running you know, apps on Mac and Windows. Nah, I want a native. Mm-hmm. So I went out and bought a book on .NET 4.0 and C Sharp. Thick book. I'm the <laughs> thickest, thickest programming book I've ever seen, I've ever owned. And spent a year reading that book. And I bought another book because I needed to, to store data. So on Entity Framework. Right. And I read that book. And then I spent a year writing this or rewriting this Mac indie app of mine on Windows and then didn't really put much thought or effort into marketing it, just released like a demo version on some of the download sites, never sold a single copy. An entire year spent, (laughs) a new language, C Sharp, a new language learned, a new framework, .NET learned. And that was in 2010. So almost a decade has gone since then. I don't remember any of C-Sharper.net, so it, it was almost a wasted experience. I've never used it in any of my jobs, but that's what I do. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge proponent of, of native development. I mock <laughs> cross-platform development, especially on, on the mobile platforms, deride it with some regularity. So I, 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 when, when it came time to do Android, I'm going to go pick up a book and learn native Android. I had even started at the, the company I was working at, which was a consultancy, and they happened to be a really big Microsoft consultancy. And I, I was one of the people who just started their mobile practice up, and so they weren't mm-hmm. really adept at selling mobile. <laughs> but because they were big Microsoft, they were Windows, Windows Mobile Phone, whatever yeah. it was. I had started learning that right when I ended up leaving the company, and Windows Phone took a dive anyway. But I was going. I was going to do all three platforms. I'm like, okay. I, I, I at that time it hadn't been so long since I had done C sharp and and right. it. so I, yeah, I can I can do this Windows stuff. I, I I'll I'll do all three platforms. If another platform came out today that looked cool, absolutely, I'd go grab a book. Well, okay, I'd order a book. Actually, no, I'd probably go. I actually still enjoy the walk into the Barnes and Nobles and and grab a book in my hand and and look through it and see, is this, does this look good? Is this the one I want? Okay, let me go buy this and start reading it. Those are getting harder and harder to find. Yes, they are. And I um, do, I'll order them quite a bit now. It mm-hmm. has been a little while since I actually walked into the store and bought one. Yeah, I'm too lazy to drive all the way <laughs> 15 or 20 minutes to the Barnes & Noble. I work right across you know, from one just about oh, there you go. Way. It's not as big of a deal for me. So one thing that I'm curious then, uh, you know, so you'd pick up a book, now, do you start at the beginning and work your way through the book? Or do you just kind of use it as a reference as you're picking stuff up? Or are you more like me where you start at the beginning, you get far enough to get dangerous, and then you pick and choose what you're going to read? <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of glad you asked that question, because that's one of the amusing things I talk to people about, when, especially when I interview. I always tell people, every programming book I get for every new language, every new framework, whatever... I read the book cover to cover, but I only code from the first third of it. The, just as a... You know, right. Because the first third are generally the basic concepts. The last two thirds are the advanced concepts. Mm-hmm. And I read it, but I don't use it. So when you come you know, into a company where I started the project off and I'm the one, the guy who wrote this program... You could just be out of school. You could have just read the book yourself. You could be a, you know, a junior developer. You will be able to pick up whatever application I wrote and instantly understand what's going on versus some applications I've walked into, especially C++, where people want to show just how much they know every intricate little piece of that language. Right. And you run across stuff and like, what in the world is this? And you have to go back to the book 
And what did they, what is this syntax? What, oh, this is some esoteric piece of the language they chose to use. I don't do it. I don't do it. I don't like it. So yeah, I start at the beginning, read it, chapter one, two, three, on through the end, depending on the circumstances. Usually I, I want to read the whole thing before I start a project in it, but that's not always the case. So like right wow. now, the Kotlin project, yeah, the Kotlin book I've got, I got from Big Nerd Ranch because uh-huh. they, they, they have a history in the Mac world of being, you know, they start out as like the Mac OS development oh, book yeah, they did. company and then iOS and now kind of, and I don't know if the Android folks revere them as much, but you know, for me, they're the go-to guys. Well, the, the book that I bought in Kotlin from them is a, you know, they say it's for anybody, whether you're an experienced mobile programmer who wants to learn Kotlin mm-hmm. or whatever, but you know, it's teaching loops. <laughs> it's teaching about, you know, if and else. And I'm, I'm like, I could skip this because I already know this stuff, but no, I'm reading every word, every page. However, I may very well start to work on a project soon and work on the project as I work my way through the book. The, the first real application I wrote back in the mid 80s, when one of the guys I knew from that, that color computer community you know, came to me, called me one day and was like, hey, there's this, I, I swear he referred to it as new. There's this new language, C, it's awesome. You, you gotta learn this. Um, so yeah, it wasn't new, but it was new to me and I guess new to him. Right. He pushed me towards um, C Primer Plus, published by the Weight Group. And I'm pretty sure I still have, I think my original copy somehow got lost or destroyed. And I bought another copy because it was, you know, this seminal book that, that kind of got me right. started in this career. So then the first app, uh, app, I only refer to mobile applications as apps. Everything else is an application. So the, the first program application that I wrote for the color computer way back when, if you were to go through the code, you would be able to see why didn't he use a switch here? Why are, why are there a bunch of if else's here that would do? I hadn't read that part of the book yet. So <laughs> you go further through the code. Oh, now he's using switches. Okay, I got to that part of the book. I mean, literally, you could look through that code base and see my development as I learned the language more. That's the first time I did that. And that's, that's what I did with the very first real language I learned. And, and I kind of did that now with, or I'm about to do that probably with Kotlin. But usually... I kind of do want to read the whole thing. And, and I am noticing with Kotlin, I'm not highlighting anything. I'm kind of, because it's a bunch of stuff I already know, I'm kind of trying to speed through it. But I know I'm going to forget some stuff that if I go read the entire book, I'll be, oh, okay, I read it all, but I don't even remember some of the, the, the basics. So I am thinking I'm probably going to, to get a project started. And I just know that a year from now, I'll be refactoring it because yeah, I learned better ways of doing things as I went along. Interesting. I might have to uh, attack that, uh, that particular, because I've always just kind of worked my way through it as I've been trying to program stuff. And it's, yeah, I wind up getting lost or running into stuff. And then it's, oh, there's this other way to handle this, or there's, you know, there's a mechanism for that. And I wind up skipping it because I got far enough to have a running program. And then, yeah. Right. I'm curious too, though, in this approach with books, I could see an instance where there is an advanced concept, but it's got a very well-defined edge case that it handles, and you might want to pull it in just for that. Do you ever do that, or are you, are you really you know, super focused on that first third? Because I, I like the concept, but I could definitely see where there might be an exception. Recently, for some reason, I, I don't use the word soured, but um, I, I think it's working with, designers and, and working with folks on the business side who, who, Hey, I, it would be really cool. This app could do this. Like, and it could do it in one, you know, one tap. Look, th- this is a process that should take three. I, I've started to, for lack of a better word, sour a bit on user interface. And I've gotten more excited about moving data around an app architecture having data available on demand, notifying disparate sections of an app when new data is available. So a lot of the plumbing is really what I've kind of gotten into lately. And so last year, or a little over a year ago, I I wrote these frameworks for, framework for iOS and library for Android that did backend communications and notifying 
interested parties when data was retrieved or when data failed and files, no, not file, but field or information storage and whether it's in memory or in user defaults or um, saved to a file and, and doing that in a way that's kind of unified and, and you can make calls and not have to know all the intricacies of how to get the documents directory and how to save files and all that kind of stuff. So I, I wrote these framework classes that I just actually open sourced on GitHub about a week ago. And doing that in one, one of the other bits of that was business object population, you know, often from JSON, retrieved from some backend call. And there's frameworks out there to do all this stuff. But one of the things about me is I love reinventing wheels. I don't want to be a, a programmer who builds Lego sets with blocks other people created. I learned right. stuff. But doing that, especially that object inflation thing, required knowing a bit more about generics and things like that that aren't in the first third of the book. So I did have to go back to school a bit on Swift and on Java. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, how do, how do I do this? How do I pass in this? class that needs to be populated from this data with unknown types of you know or how do I define the data that, that I then pass this unknown class or generic class in and, and get a populated object of the right type passed back to me. So yeah that that did require going and, and looking. So there I can see not just even edge cases, but cases where okay, I can do this in a either one, it cannot be done with the basics right. or two it can be done in an incredibly kludgy way. And, and I'm doing this as a framework that I actually want to use for the next decade. Yeah. So I want to do it right. Makes sense. Now, this is the Clean Coders podcast and you have a series on Clean Coders. <laughs> you want to just talk about that for a minute? Because sometimes I talk to people that have done content for Clean Coders and they're like, well, I live in Chicago and I'm like, okay, I know how you know Bob. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but, you know, you're this guy that lives down in Arizona. And so I'm, I'm curious how that course came about and what, what the story is there. So the, the place that I worked at uh, that I mentioned was the Microsoft Consultancy. They've got about 18 offices around the country. They're headquartered in Irvine. Um, I did some work with one of the guys out of headquarters who was working on an iOS project and he and I collaborated a bit. And once one of us, I don't remember which one of us left the company first. Oh, I did. I'm pretty sure. We stayed in touch and ended up being connected on Facebook. He had met Bob at a some kind of programming convention years earlier and they had stayed in touch. Well, all three of us are really politically involved. And this mutual friend of ours started a private political discussion group on Facebook <laughs> and invited us both to it. And Bob and I are on completely opposite ends of the spectrum politically. But unlike a lot of people, we engaged a lot and it was always respectful and always an oh, that's good. conversation. I always and- hold my breath a little when I hear people saying this. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad. You, you can breathe easy. I'm not going to say anything bad here. So yeah, and, and through that, and even once you know that group went away, we connected on Facebook and continued discussions right. and he would join mine and I would join his. And at some point in time, his, I think it's his oldest son, and his family moved down here. And the wife and the kids drove out in the car and Bob and his son flew out in his son's plane, a little three-seater. And Bob and I had never met. So he's like, hey, why don't you come over here? We're going to go flying. So I drove across town to one of the, the little airports in Mesa and met him, shook hands, saw face to face the first time, and then hopped in a plane. And we went and flew up around. There's a crater, a big crater in, in Arizona here that's like a big you know, tourist attraction where a really big asteroid or meteorite slammed into the earth a bunch of years ago. And then we flew around Sedona, which is a, a very, very nice, scenic, beautiful for a lot of people, vacation spot around here. You know, spent a couple hours doing that, came back down, went and had lunch together. And then he came back Thanksgiving of 2018. And we went out to lunch and said, hey, what would you think about maybe doing a video series for iOS development? And I had just been at a conference, uh, a local, mostly slated towards mobile tech conference, and the guy who was the recruiter who got me into American Express and got me into mobile was there. 
And he asked me, what did you think about teaching iOS development? Because we've started up this thing. We can't find enough mobile developers. Mm-hmm. So we started this, this Intrage University and you want to you know, teach people iOS. I'm like, well, no, because, you know, and I'm thinking really because you're in front of this group of people who can throw any kind of question at you. And you know, I've been programming for a long time and I know I still use auto-completion to, to complete <laughs> the methods that I use every day because my memory just isn't that good and, and right. I don't have to remember it. So I'm going to get, I would get asked a ton of questions that I wouldn't know the answers to and I would feel like incompetent. So I'm not going to do that. So when Bob said, you know, asked that question, I'm thinking the same thing. It's, it's teaching. Nah, that, nah, that's not my thing. And I went home that night, talked to the wife about it and thought about it. I'm like, wait a minute, this is kind of a captive audience. This is not a live studio audience. <laughs> nobody's throwing questions at me. I get to script this and and I just get to say what I got to say. If anybody wanted to ask a question, they would be emailing me months and months later and, you know, I could find the answer and respond to them. So yeah, this, this is not the same thing as, is being in front of a group of people teaching. So I, I, I reached back out to them the next day and said, actually, that sounds like a good idea. So for a lot of that year, I had also been thinking about trying to raise my profile a bit in the development world. And I started being on Twitter more, which I had previously shunned completely and found that there's this you know, huge development community and, and, a, and a really strong iOS development community on Twitter. And, and you know, so I, I, I want to be one of these people. And I, you know, I kind of want to raise my profile there and I want to release more indie stuff and release more or put more stuff open source and, and, and try to, to, now, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm going to be Mark Zuckerberg, but my target is, so if you're in the Mac world, do you know who Will Shipley is? I think we had him on the iFreaks podcast at one point. Oh. See, like for, for a lot of Mac users, I don't know who Will Shipley is, but for a lot of Mac programmers, oh, Will Shipley. He's a, a, a big fish in this small pond of Mac development. And I'm like, I, you know, I, that's what I'm aspiring to. I want to be one of those folks. So it was a, what things can I do? I'm going to start talking at conferences you know, I want to start making more blog posts. I want to do this. I want to, maybe Apple's going to introduce some new technology that, that I can latch on to right when WWDC happens and be like the go-to guy on that or one of them because I really latched onto it and learned it in depth early. So when Robert caught me, it was right around the time where I'm thinking this. And, and what, what better way or, or of the multiple avenues I can go, that's a fantastic one. He's got a built-in audience. He's you know, famous amongst this group of people, this community. And so to be able to latch onto that and reach out to, to, to people is, an, is just another way of uh, being able to raise my own profile and, and be you know, bigger in this industry. Yeah, I was wrong. He hasn't been on the show, but he's been mentioned several times. I don't know what percentage of Mac programmers know him, but I know a fair amount do. And it, you know, he's, he's a semi-celebrity around these parts. Nice. Yeah. And again, it, it's the personal connections, right? That seem to make it work out for people to get what they want. And so, you know, it, it gave you the opportunities you have. I talk to people and they're like, well, developers, you know, they just, you know, they lack those interpersonal skills or they, you know, <laughs> they, they go off and they code on their own. And I, and, and I tell people all the time now, I'm like, I'm like, not the ones that want to keep their jobs and not the ones that want to be successful because anymore it's, it's a social activity. You're going to be on a team. You have to be able to work with your team. And that's just for the baseline professional stuff. If you want to go find a job, if you want to have opportunities, yeah, you go out and you meet people. Oh, yeah, that I've learned so much from actually participating in Twitter to seeing of, yep. of how people have built now entire careers. And guys who don't write software anymore, their career is, you know, you've got a guy, Paul Hudson, Swift, Basically, Swift guru Paul Hudson, but uh, hacking with Swift. That escaped me for a minute. Uh, you know his website and and the books that, that he's written. I don't think Paul does. I don't think Paul writes complete programs anymore to do anything. He just understands Swift probably better than anybody and writes about it. A lot of stuff is available for free, but he also does sell books and he speaks at conferences and it has made him somewhat of a celebrity in. Mm-hmm. You know, iOS development in the iOS development world, and he's not the only one. And he's the one I follow most. But there's there's other guys, um, John Sundell, Swift by Sundell, and, and yep. he's got his weekly newsletter he sends out. And you know, to see that that these guys in just a few years that Swift has come about, 
have made a name for themselves and a self-sustaining business for themselves just by being social and being good at this one specific thing, this language that would be used to write iOS apps. Yeah, that's totally true. And I write software. I write software an hour a day just because I force myself to. But I'm running a podcast network, right? And it's, it's the same kind of thing, right? People know who I am because I'm able to go find people who, are, who can come and talk about whatever it is they want to hear. And I know enough to be able to ask the right questions to draw that information out. But I don't know it. Right. And I don't use it every day. But it, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Even the people that I meet that are looking for programming jobs that are going to write code every day, yeah, they still all benefit from these opportunities they find just by being a good person and by going out and interacting with other good people. Oh, yeah. I see people helping each other online all the time. There's a nice legitimate network. And if I was ever in need of a new job, I would go to that network and say, hey, you know, help me out here. And, and they wouldn't a heartbeat. Or if I had a problem, which people have every day, it's not Stack Overflow. Well, Stack Overflow is fine. But I see people getting answers faster and better by hitting their just Twitter, you know, just hitting yeah. their online network and people are happy to jump in and help out. And people love hearing what other people are working on and, and, and lending a helping hand and being a part of that stuff. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, we're pretty much out of time. If people want to follow up with you about this conversation or, you know, hire you to come do some training or anything like that, where, where do they find you? So I'm pretty sure that the Twitter handle is Mr. EGC, is in M-I-S-T-E-R-E-G-C. Mm-hmm. Oh, check that. Yep, sure is. And the email for the independent stuff I do, uh, you know, we all have a, a company. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had a couple over the years. And then the current one is called Infusions of Grandeur. I like it. <laughs> and so... My email address there is eric at, unfortunately, it's not iog.com, but it is infusions, I-N-F-U-S-I-O-N-S of O-F, grandeur, G-R-A-N-D-E-U-R.com. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming and talking to me, Eric. Well, thanks for having me. This has been fun. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap us up. And yeah, thanks again. We'll be back next week, folks. And in the meantime, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>